Welcome to the voice of MPE, the official podcast of Merchant Payments Ecosystem, Europe's largest merchant payments conference. Today, we're at the 15th annual MPE conference, MPE 2022. In these podcast series, we bring you interviews with payments industry leaders and professionals from the entire world. For more information, head over to www.merchantpaymentsecosystem.com. In this episode, we'll talk about payment fraud and look into the various types of scams that have emerged during the COVID period with your host, Mark McMurtry. Hello, and welcome to this MPE podcast interview. My name is Mark McMurtry, I'm Director of Payments Consultancy Limited, and I'm proud to be an ambassador for the Payments Association. It is my pleasure today to be interviewing Brittany Allen from SIFT. Um, and to start the interview, whatever, perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself and the organization you represent. Sure. So my name is Brittany Allen. I am a trust and safety architect at SIFT, which means I get a lot of odd targeted job messages on LinkedIn for architecture firms, but that's not what I do. I actually am a former merchant who works for SIFT, a fraud prevention solution to help customers identify fraud, to do fraud research, to basically serve as an advocate for merchants. And my own experience is over a decade in fraud prevention, mostly at companies that are in e-commerce marketplaces. So I got my start at Etsy, and then I moved on to Airbnb, worked for a company called First Dibs, which is luxury marketplace. So if you'd like to talk about six-figure orders and making really tough decisions, I can tell those stories. And then I also lastly worked at Let Go, which is a secondhand marketplace. So Sounds lots a of, lot of experience. Lots of great experience. <laughs> and it would be fascinating to, tap, you know, to discuss with you around this. But why don't we start by exploring, you know, so what impact do you really think that the COVID you know, pandemic has had on payment fraud? I mean, so much, but just kind of starting with the obvious when everybody was at home and therefore the need to buy things persisted and shifted online. That is, of course, a major, major change. People who might not have bought certain things are now more comfortable with buying online or might not have used certain types of services. I was just talking with somebody earlier today about the proliferation of romance scams during the pandemic. And that was a type of scam that found many new victims because people who had previously only been comfortable dating in person decided they wanted to try to meet somebody online during the pandemic. So, of course, then you get people uh, more and more online. And another thing that was very unfortunate was that fraudsters became very adept at uh, getting loans or finding ways to get money via whether it was small business loans that different states and countries were giving out or other kind of pandemic relief loans. So they became very flush with cash, had a lot of money to spend, and then a lot more time to hone their fraud. And lastly, I would say we saw a really big emergence of what I would call fraud as a service, where instead of fraudsters just stealing payment credentials and selling them to others or being the ones who then bought those to uh, use on websites, instead fraudsters are far more likely to run their, their fraud scams as a service for others. So you don't have to worry about buying a stolen credit card from me to go buy the headphones you want, but I will do it on your behalf. You so just, it's almost an industry in its own right. Oh, yes, it really is. I mean, there's so much change that's happened over the past two years. It's it's almost impossible. We'd be here all day if we got into all of the different, you know. So you mentioned the romance <laughs> scams. Are there other uh-huh. types of scams you noticed? Yes. So we've got the romance scams, which 
in some ways also bleed into another very targeted vertical we saw, which was crypto scams. So there is a particular type of romance scam that is a little bit strange for its name, but it's called the pig butchering scam. It's actually a scam that is generally run out of China, and that is something that they've named it where they will find a victim on a dating site, somebody who they strike up a relationship with or at least a conversation with, generally take it off platform to a messaging app. And then the person who is running the scam basically introduces a fake cryptocurrency exchange into the conversation and encourages the victim to deposit money into that exchange because they guarantee that they're going to make a massive profit. And because that is a fake cryptocurrency exchange controlled by the fraudster, it shows nothing but extremely positive returns, which then encourages this person who thinks they're talking to someone they may date or someone they may fall in love with to put even more money into the exchange. And that is the fattening of the pig side of that scam. And then, of course, we get to the unfortunate part, which would be the, the butchering side. And that is generally when the victim either refuses to put more money in, realizes they've been had, and is unable to withdraw the funds that they've put in there. So, I mean, one big call out for romance scams is I believe that they are very underreported because people have so much more of an emotional attachment in those situations that they are less likely to want to admit publicly that they fell for something. So perhaps you can tell us more about uh, the role of social engineering in this. Yes. So fraudsters are very adept. Well, some fraudsters, the ones who specialize in social engineering, of course, they all sort of have their siloed specializations. A fraudster isn't going to be able to do every type of fraud or scam that merchants encounter out there. But the ones that are very good at social engineering, I mean, they've been around for hundreds of years. We used to call them con men because, you know, they would be able to convince somebody to give them money or, or otherwise do something. It's the, the same thing now. It's just having that charisma and it's being able to manipulate people. And it can be from an email. It can be from a phone call. It can be from a message on a social network. There's lots of different ways that they can connect with people. And unfortunately, when fraudsters use sort of the veil of a trusted company to do so, that then makes people ignore some of the red flags and they're more likely to fall for a scam. So say if your bank called you about fraud on your credit card, you might be more willing to talk to them, except it's not your bank, it's a fraudster. Okay. Can you tell us a bit more about some of the other you know, types of fraud which you're seeing increasing? Mm -hmm. So let's see. So there was a lot of fraud uh, during the pandemic that's focused around basic needs. You know, people were either laid off from work, which unfortunately is a reality that we are heading into again with this impending recession. You'll see people posting online, you know, it seems like every week there's another company that's had a big layoff. So people will always have those basic needs. And not everybody is going to turn to fraud to meet those needs. But in moments of desperation, we will see that pop up. So someone may then, for fraud as a service, reach out to a food delivery fraudster so that they can put dinner on the table. Others may reach out to a fraudster who is good at travel so that they can get a hotel room so they have a place to stay if they've lost their apartment, for example. And then others just might learn from some of that other you know, fraud that I had mentioned, like unemployment fraud, and get funds in that manner. So that's a difficult subject to discuss because we're talking about people who you know, may or may not have committed any fraud otherwise until they were put in a 
perilous situation, but that is a reality of what can increase when we go through rough economic times. And this all leads into what I think is called friendly fraud or or first-party fraud? It can, yes. We'll see that as well. So a great example of that, so for first-party fraud, just to make sure that we're all using the same definition. I used to be a history teacher, so I try to take a step back and make sure we're talking about the same thing. That is when somebody is using their own payment method, so their own credit card, their own whatever it is, their own payment method to make a purchase, and then they later dispute it as fraud when it in fact was not. So yeah, we saw that happening at the beginning of the pandemic where people had maybe paid for a trip or made other large purchases, and then they suddenly needed those funds released on their credit card. And so they went the route of filing a chargeback dispute when that actually wasn't warranted. And it got so bad that some credit card companies actually restricted people's ability to file chargeback disputes for quite a large chunk of 2020. I know my own bank, they made it so that you could only file a chargeback dispute via the phone so that you had to go through that extra layer of friction because they were getting so many disputes from people who either had trouble canceling or just needed those funds released. But yeah, as far as first party misuse, that's for all of the years that I've worked in fraud, been something that is both a common topic of discussion, but a constant point of frustration for merchants to actually find a way to try to circumvent it, if that's even possible for all types of friendly fraud, which I don't think it is. And obviously, you know, SIFT you know, has clients all around the world. Are you able to see sort of different regional variations? And if so, perhaps you could explain some of the, what you're seeing. We are. So some of that might have to do with the payment method. And in some regions, it's either more or less difficult to, let's say, file a chargeback dispute. So that will affect the volumes of chargebacks within those areas. There are other regions that are sort of protected by more consumer protection. So there'll be different policies. There'll be different things that companies have to comply with. So maybe they collect more or less information about a particular consumer on their platform, which then, of course, will change how they're able to either identify fraud or, you know, be able to win a chargeback dispute, just whatever they have at their fingertips can be quite different. And then when it comes to patterns of fraud, it can be so niche down to a sporting event that is in a particular area. Like when we're in the U.S., we'll see very particular types of fraud surrounding the Super Bowl. Over the past years, every even year, we see a type of fraud surrounding wherever the Olympics is being held. So it can be at the level of country all the way down to just one city as far as a emerging pattern of fraud, just depending on what the opportunities for the fraud are. Sounds like the criminals are very organized and targeting. You know, they are able to repeat a lot of their playbook, whereas let's say that they are good at social engineering. Maybe they're going to target, you know, one specific vertical, but then they can always switch and use those skills elsewhere. And so, yeah, they are constant opportunists. I don't, I don't think we would deny that. And obviously the criminals are very much using the dark web. So tell us a bit more about how you're seeing, you know, the dark web being used and what can be done to try and use it as prevention. Right. So there's, Obviously, a lot that merchants have to do with just looking at the data and looking at what is within their own system. So seeing what the transactions are or what user activity is on their platform will help them separate trustworthy and legitimate customers from those that are risky or potentially fraudulent. And that is something that is a bit more, you're more able to do that at scale when you use technologies like machine learning. 
But there's still a real benefit of just knowing what the chatter is about your company or about your brand and knowing what fraudsters you know, think about your brand or how they may be targeting you. And so looking at both dark web forums or looking at secure or private messaging apps like Telegram can be really useful for a merchant because they can actually see you know, just what that constant chatter is. And also more interestingly, in some cases, they can, if they're a small merchant, let's say, look up the name of a company that they aspire to be one day and see what the fraud chatter is about that company and then get an idea of, oh, if we are looking to be the next this within five years, here's what they're currently dealing with or here's what's currently happening to them. That will probably be our reality at some point. Do you have any advice you can share with our merchant audience about the steps they should be taking to protect their business and their end customers? Oh, so much advice. Yes. So I know I had brought data up earlier, but that is extremely important for you to not only use your data and use what you have available to identify, again, the risky potential transactions or other you know, fraudulent signals within your system, but to really make sure that you're understanding what your data is telling you and not taking all of it at face value. We started off talking a bit about chargebacks. That could include having the time or the process to look at all of the chargebacks that come in with a fraud reason code, because you can't accept that at face value that they are all true fraud. And if you were to just use that to, for example, uh, take action against customers and block accounts or to train a machine learning model, that's not going to be as informed as if you were able to then separate out the true fraud, use that for training your model for future fraud prevention. And then, you know, look at the friendly fraud or first party misuse chargebacks and treat those in a different way. So really knowing what you're looking for, knowing what the threats are to your vertical and breaking down all of that potential fraud by either the evergreen categories of the type of fraud that'll never go away, the cyclical categories of fraud that are tied to changes in the economy. And then this one, I think, is what I'll actually end on as a really big takeaway that merchants might not be considering, but looking at emerging fraud trends. And so I would say for emerging fraud trends, those are ones where there is not yet a fully defined solution that would be considered, you know, the gold standard for the beginning. So identifying the fraud to the end of, you know, mitigating it, et cetera. I think over the past few years, a great example of that has been return and refund abuse where a lot of merchants just aren't equipped and set up to actually tackle that and be able to prevent that kind of fraud. So keeping track of the emerging fraud trends, what other merchants are doing and how they're learning from it is a big challenge, but so very important. How can our payments industry collaborate more together in order to try and yeah, beat the criminal? Any thoughts on that? So coming to conferences like where we are right now at MPE Berlin is a good start, simply because you'll meet people, you'll network, but other than that, just being willing to connect on platforms such as LinkedIn or being able to you know, attend webinars. I know we can get overwhelmed with putting out fires in our day-to-day, -day, but if we don't take the time to you know, read up on industry publications or otherwise try to stay informed as possible about fraud and about those risks, then you can kind of fall into those patterns of you know, not being on the forefront or not having that kind of guidance. And you can't forget that the entire time that we are fighting the fraudsters, fraudsters are more than happy to communicate with each other. And we've seen in the fraud groups on Telegram, 
rapid-fire communication between fraudsters, sharing information about, hey, is this company actually a good target? No, they recently changed their rules. It's hard to get through. You should target this company instead. Down to them having mentorship groups where they have mentor-mentee relationships training each other on fraud. So if you're not collaborating and the fraudsters are, that's not a good sign for the merchants. One thing I like to do is I have set up some basically Google alerts or news alerts around certain keywords. Maybe it's interesting type of fraud or a vertical, and that can keep me informed. And yeah, you just have to kind of take that step to find that information. There's also a few educational courses and things like that that are available out there. But it's very much where you have to take that initiative or at least that first step. But once you start to network with people in the industry, hopefully you'll find some good resources for that content. My name is Mark McMurtry, Director of Payments Consultancy. It's been my pleasure today talking to Brittany Allen from SIF. Brittany, thank you very much for sharing your great experience. And uh, I think you've given us incentive really to, to make sure we review what we're doing as far as fraud prevention and try and make sure we can beat the criminal together. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the official MPE podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show and check out our video interviews with other industry leaders on YouTube. For more content, follow Merchant Payments Ecosystem on LinkedIn and Twitter, read our Positivity magazine, and subscribe to the MPE newsletter at www.merchantpaymentsecosystem.com.